For more information on Is This Freedom or to hear past and future episodes, be sure to visit us at www.brianbanksfree.com or on Instagram and all social media platforms at BB Is This Freedom. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Is This Freedom, episode one. If you ask the person to your left or right what freedom means, their answers will vary. For some, freedom may be spiritual or emotional freedom, physical freedom, political freedom, being incarcerated for something that you didn't do, or maybe for something that you did, but you feel you deserve a second chance at freedom. For me, being someone that had lost 10 years of my life due to a wrongful conviction, from the very first day that I was placed into a cell, the idea and the understanding of freedom has become my life's journey. Wanting to understand it truly and wholly. Am I truly free today? Am I truly living a free life? Are you? Are we? Let's talk about freedom. Here for a order to show cost hearing people. Uh, the people will concede the matter, Your Honor, and ask the court to grant the petition. All right, the petition is granted. Motion. The people's motion to dismiss this case pursuant to section 15 of the That will be granted. I know that I'm here today, and I remain unbroken. I set my heart out to prove my innocence by any means necessary. And we did that today. The California Innocence Project has the job of mopping up cases years later where we send law students into prisons and across this state investigating cases to find people who are innocent and prove that. And that's something that the government should be working together with us on because it's in everyone's interest that innocent people aren't in prison. And I want to thank the LA District Attorney's Office for working so closely with us on this case and that's why we're able to resolve it today. All I've ever wanted was just my freedom, and I got that today. What is freedom, and does it truly exist in today's world? So freedom to me means the ability to do what you want to do, right? And the more you can do what you want to do, the freer you are. But we do empower our government to restrict people's freedoms when they're infringing on other people's freedoms. Like, you know, telling people they can't smoke in restaurants because your freedom to smoke impinges on my freedom to breathe fresh air. And that's reasonable. So having reasonable restrictions on people's freedoms when they're hurting other people makes sense. What doesn't make sense is when we're taking away people's freedoms without really thinking it through, giving good process, being fair, because that's pretty much all we have in this life. Mm. And when all your freedoms are taken away, um, your life is taken away. Uh, we we got to be careful about people's freedoms and think about them a lot more. Mm. That's deep. And I totally agree. So at what point, uh, at what point does a person's freedom matter more than a systematic game, so to say, this, this thing that we call uh, uh the legal process or law? Well, I mean, in my mind, and I'm sure in your mind, it should always trump 
procedure, it should always be the most important thing. I mean, taking away someone's freedom, for the, the, the government can take everything away from you. Like we've empowered the government in our collective community to have the power to take everything away mm -hmm. from our citizens, right? And it's the most awesome power they could have. It's, the mo it's, it's a ridiculous level of power. And we entrust them with it because we want to live in a community that is safe. We want to mm -hmm. live in a community where our families are okay. So we've said, government, you can pull people out of this community and take their life away if they do things that, that we believe are so harmful to our society. So if that's not used responsibly, um, what could be more wrong than that? So hmm. we should always be double checking, triple checking, quadruple checking our work to make sure we got it right. That's not what happens. The system right. processes you and moves on. As I was thinking about this podcast and um, the importance of it and, and what we can actually do with this here, um, immediately what it took me to was my beginnings. You know, what brought me here today? Um, you know, from my wrongful conviction to the exoneration to, you know, all the opportunities that, you know, were in front of me, uh, you know, after it all. But none of that would have been possible had it been for the California Innocence Project, uh, an, or an organization that is designated to help wrongfully convicted people um, have their cases set aside or to be exonerated uh, through um, some newly discovered evidence or some evidence that was never presented at court during that time that could have saved them. Before we get into all of that, what was most important for me was to have a conversation about you. Uh, yes, the California Innocence Project, but more so you as a person, um, the choices that you've made in your life that has brought you to where you are today. And I guess the best way to do that would be uh, take me back to high school, your senior year. You are yeah. <laughs> finally about to graduate. You know, you're done with, uh, you know, people telling you when to do, how to do and what to do. Uh, and you're stepping into manhood. And you're putting, you're being put in a position where uh, it's time to make some adult decisions. Uh, take me to your graduation day. I like that question. I've not been asked it ever before. Uh, I did not have a high school graduation day because I actually ski skipped my senior year of high school because I was so desperate to get out on my own, start my own life. Um, I went to high school in Puerto Rico. Um, that was a life-changing experience for me. It's kind of where I started to be shaped as a person. I, I went there from suburban Philadelphia. So, you know, I was just another white kid in suburban Philadelphia. And then my dad gets a job down in Puerto Rico when I'm 12 years old. And the next thing you know, um, in a high school full of all Puerto Rican kids. I'm the only gringo in my high school. I don't didn't speak, speak Spanish. Spanish. Yeah, didn't, <laughs> didn't speak, speak Spanish. Didn't speak a word of Spanish. <laughs> um, and I was freaking out. 
when I first got there. I had never known, had any sense of what it was like to be a minority. Uh, you know, I grew up a white kid in, in mostly white community. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen real poverty before. Now, now I'm taking the bus. I'm seeing people living in aluminum houses on the side of the road. I'm seeing lots of homeless people. Um, my whole perspective on the world changed. I was in the United States, but not really in the United States. There was a lot of anti-American sentiment at that time about stuff that the U.S. was doing with their policies in Puerto Rico. So yeah, that. So I I graduated high school when I was sixteen, and I moved thousands of miles away. I went back to Philadelphia because that's what I knew and went to Temple University in 1982. And man, you but talk about before, freedom. <laughs> go ahead, freedom. finish that thought. For, finish that thought. Talk about freedom. Well, that, that was freedom because all of a sudden, I mean, I'm 16 years old and I'm on my own in Philadelphia and able to do whatever I want to do. And back mm. then, if you had a college ID, you could get into bars. And so right, I'm all right, of a sudden right. hanging out in bars and having a really good time. Well, let me ask you this. What was, what was your dreams coming out of high school? Because you're a lawyer today. Um, but I'm, was, that the, was that the goal? Was that the dream coming out of high school as well? So I, I found a few years ago a paper that I wrote in eighth grade that said that I wanted to be a lawyer. And so, you know, you never remember when those things start. And then I realized, mm -hmm. wow, that it did start pretty young. But, you know, the place it came from was my dad went through a bunch of bankruptcies when I was a kid. Like okay. we had a few times where we left in the middle of the night places, got kicked out of places we were living. And um, I saw in those bankruptcies, the lawyers always seemed to do fine. <laughs> Like everybody else did badly, but the lawyers were lawyers fine. always getting paid. <laughs> yeah. And I saw that on TV. So I actually, when I first thought about being a lawyer, it was to be a civil lawyer. It was, I didn't have any thought about being a criminal lawyer until mm. my first year of law school, um, when my criminal law professor took us to a prison and I went to a prison. I started talking to the guys there. And they were asking me questions and I didn't have any answers. And I said, well, I'll come back. And I came back to the prison and I started teaching in a prison when I was in law school. And then I mm -hmm. changed my entire life of like, you know, this is what I want to do, criminal law. Wow. So, <laughs> I mean, I know you went into this prison and you were asking questions and you were learning, but how was that first experience walking into a, an institution for men that have committed all types of crimes? <laughs> it was crazy um, because I, I went to law school in Washington, D.C., and it was like Northwest D.C., which, again, is like this sort of lily white, um, wealthy part of Washington. Um, and now you and I went to Washington together, so you kind of saw that Washington, too. There's this very kind of, you know, upper class, rich um, D.C. with all the beautiful buildings and everything. But um, so I hadn't really spent any time down in Southeast D.C., which is where most people live. And that's where the poor people live. And the D.C. prison was something like 97, 90 percent, 98 percent black men. Um, so it was right. it was crazy. I walked in there and I'd never seen, you know, that many black men all in one place at one time, all locked up. 
Um, it's very different than the California prisons where you see all kinds of races. You didn't see that in D.C. It was like all black men. And um, how old were you then when you were, when you went for the first time? I guess 22. It's the first 22. time I, I entered a prison. And uh, yeah. it definitely impacted me. It's, it's, it's something, you know, we put these prisons where people don't see them. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. We lock yeah. people up. We lock them away. We forget about them. Um, so would you say like initially when you pursued law, it wasn't to free the innocent. It wasn't to get involved with all the black men that were in prison in Washington, D.C. Yeah. It was to pursue a, a, a good life, right? To pursue somewhat of a decent life, make some good money, potentially raise a family one day and be able to take care of them. That's exactly right. What was it that experience of visiting the prisons in D.C. that inspires you to to start focusing on innocent people in prison? Or was it something more defining that made you or that brought you to that decision? Innocence was never part of it for me back then. Um, you know, when I talk to these guys with their drug cases and stuff, I would just think, what, what are they doing here? Like, we don't need to be locking people up for drug charges. Mm-hmm. There's so much petty stuff in there. And sure, there are really violent people um, that do need something to happen. But my experience was that the majority of guys in prison didn't, didn't need to be there. They needed other things in their lives to make them better. They needed health care. They needed drug rehab. They needed diversion programs. They needed employment. So for me, I didn't really think about innocence that much, but it made me want to be a criminal defense attorney. It made me want to get people not to go to prison. Um, the defining thing in my life was the Marilyn Malero case. Um, yeah, I want to talk to you about that because her case is featured in Brian Banks' movie. And I want to say that in some ways that may have played a small part in bringing a little bit more awareness to her case. Oh, it absolutely did. Tell us about Marilyn. I was, uh, I practiced criminal defense work in DC. Um, I worked in the prisons. My wife, Heidi and I actually started a family literacy program in DC in the prison, teaching guys how to teach their kids to read. And we were, you know, again, trying to have some good stuff happen in the prison by breaking down the cycle of illiteracy between guys in prison and their children. Um, and so I was doing a lot of great stuff there and doing criminal defense work. But after a while, I got a little bit burned out on it. Um, mm-hmm. It was I was doing it 24-7. So I get offered this teaching job in Michigan where I can buy this nice little Victorian house for $80,000. My kids can walk to a good school. And I'm teaching law. And so I grabbed it. But I only lasted about six months <laughs> before I read in the newspaper about this young woman on death row in Chicago. And in the article, it says she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. Mm. And I'm just sitting there like, how could anybody be sentenced to death on a plea bargain? Sentenced to death as a plea. Like, think about that for a second. Here's your options. You can plea and get death or you can fight it and lose and get death exactly <laughs> worst case scenario is you get death or you, you can, can take death. death now yeah, yeah. you can take, take death now yeah so unlike your case where it was dangled in front of you 
of door number one, you might get probation. Door number two, you might get the rest of your life in prison. Hers was door number one, you get to go to trial and maybe avoid death. Door number two, take death. And she had door number two. So I'm thinking this can't be right. So she was Puerto Rican, which you know, I identify with having spent my formative years in Puerto Rico. Maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But the next thing I know, I'm setting up a visit with her on death row. I'm driving a few hundred miles to get there. And I'm sitting across from this kid. You know, she's like 23 years old. At the time, I was only 29 years old, but yeah. I thought of her as a kid. Right. And she tells me the story that her lawyer told her to plead out. And, and then she says, and I'm innocent. So I'm just like, what? Why would you possibly plead out if you're innocent to the death penalty mm-hmm. um, with no like deal on the table? And she said her lawyer told her that was her best opportunity. Um, that was her best chance. And at, she didn't um, speak English. Her, she spoke English, but she was she 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 spoke Spanish and spoke English. She she had trouble with both languages, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting now, all these years later in prison, both languages are better. Um, than what she had before. So I went back and told my first year Krem Law students, I said, there's this woman sitting on death row. Um, She says she's innocent. Who wants to help me out? And four kids raised their hands. And that night we were going through the police reports and everything around my table in my kitchen. And that's when the Innocence Project for me was born. Uh, That's when I got the idea of this is the kind of work I want to do. And on the first weekend, looking into her case, we go to Humboldt Park where the shooting happened. I stand in front of the building where the one witness said she saw the shooting. And the shooting happened in front of a bathroom. And I couldn't even see the bathroom from her apartment, let alone see a person in front of it. It happened at midnight. There was no lighting. And it was just a complete fabrication I knew right away. It was 400 feet away. And just nobody ever went to the crime scene to check it out to see that the only witness was lying. And then I later find out that witness, the one person looking out their window in the city of Chicago to see the shooting, also happened to be the girlfriend of the victim. And so the whole case was based on lies. Um, And it's this one rogue detective, Detective Guevara, who even in today's news, there's another person exonerated of one of his cases. He led to dozens of people going to prison. We fabricated cases against them. And uh, mm-hmm. she was one of them, went to death row. So she sat on death row for how long? So she sat on death row for a number of years. I can't remember exactly how many years. I was able to get her death sentence reversed based on how incompetent the lawyer was in her sentencing hearing. But the problem was the jury that I argued to only had the option of life or death because the judge wouldn't let me withdraw the guilty plea. So he says, okay, the guilty plea still stands, but you can argue for sentencing again. So I put together with with a couple of public defenders a whole new sentencing hearing. We put it on, and thank God the jury at that point reversed her death sentence. But I remember vividly walking out of that courtroom on a freezing cold Chicago night, and between the door of that courtroom, 26th in California, and where I parked my car, I decided this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. So I quit my job as a law professor and I moved to California and I started the California Innocence Project because people outside California don't know how bad California is. It's, it's the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm.
It's the biggest prison system in the United States, biggest death row, three strikes, mandatory minimums. Um, we lock up more people than anybody. And that's why I want to start it there. I just finished writing about this. I just, just finished writing a book called You Might Go to Prison. Is it out? Is it on the way out? What's going on with it? should be out by early 2023. So I'm going to start promoting it more in the, in the upcoming fall. Um, it's really a book that, that talks about what I've learned um, over the last now 30 some years doing criminal defense work. And what I've ultimately learned is, is anybody might go to prison. Now, statistically, it changes the chances based on your race, based on your socioeconomics. Um, based who you where you live, based on who you hang out with. Um, there's a lot of things that impact that. But I go through chapter after chapter showing that there's reason after reason after reason that people can go to prison in our society. And we need to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Um, you know, one chapter is just called, You Look Like Other People in the World. Because I've seen so many people go to prison just because they sort of look like somebody who did a crime. And there's a bad procedure for identification. I've got a chapter called, you know, you don't like it when people keep you up all night and yell at you because I've seen so many cases where people give false confessions after they're interrogated for hours and hours on end. Uh, I've got a chapter where I talk about poverty and race and how the poorer you are, the more likely you're going to prison. And people of color are much more likely to go to prison. And people who do harm to white people are more likely to go to prison than people who do harm to people of color. And, the, and if you look through the history, you know, we went through a whole long history in our country where there's just blatant racism in our laws, which were just clear racism. And that's easy to identify. That's easy to eliminate. What is practically impossible to eliminate is people's inherent biases because that's not about the law. It's just what we carry every day. And even though we say the prosecution has the burden of proof in a criminal case, we know the reality is when those 12 people get in that box, that jury, and they look across the room and they see that dude in the shackles and the orange jumpsuit, mm -hmm. their bias is gonna build in to automatically start thinking that All person's time. guilty. Right away. Yeah, yeah. There's no way the burden of proof makes that difference. I, I say to my students, you're down two touchdowns with two minutes to go when you come in as a defense attorney. You're not ahead. Mm -hmm. they even if you even points. if you come in there with a suit on, you, you come in there with a suit on, you're shackled at the ankles, you're shackled at the wrist. The suit's all big and puffy because <laughs> you got the wrong size. Your hair is all messed up. You didn't get a good shave in. Clearly, you know, you look like you don't, you know, you don't look like the rest of them in the box. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and you know, they're thinking, why would this guy be here if he didn't do something? Um, and then the witnesses on the government side are going to be police officers, you know, decorated officers. And on your side, what's it going to be on the defense? What's well, often family members who they'll just say are just trying to protect this person. Um, you know, and God forbid that your client's got priors or an affiliation with a gang, because as soon as they hear that, then it's game over. Mm -hmm. So there's these things in our system. And as you said, it's human beings making decisions. So right. human beings, we're all inherently flawed, all of us. Right. And we all carry our bias every day and we all bring our life experience to it. 
And that's why the system will never be perfect as long as it's human driven. Politics, people bring their politics into it. Some people get into it to to exercise their political rights and their political beliefs. Um, So, you know, we see people day in and day out that get off on uh, blatant guilt, (laughs) clear guilt, and they get off on it where a person that, you know, there is, you know, there is that shadow of doubt of innocence and they still get the book thrown at them. Uh, and they come after and, and go after and go after them and go after them until finally you succumb to either, you know, being fighting your case from in jail and you've been in there for a year plus and the conditions are so bad. And uh, the, the you know, the what they're telling you that could happen to you is so extreme that you, you run off and plead to a deal or, uh, you know, you got it's so many other things you could be, you know, in Maryland's case, you can have a, a, a an attorney who uh, is human that didn't put in the necessary work um, that doesn't take yep. your life as serious as they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow they convince you that taking a deal for death is better than just going to court and fighting it in trial. I mean, if you're going to kill me on a plea, you might as well kill me fighting. I mean, <laughs> I'm a fight to the end. If that's the case, we might as well go to trial which I, I completely understand why you first heard that and said, it just doesn't make sense. If you're saying that my deal is death, then I might as well go to trial and fight this case and hope that I can plead to, hope that I can plead to 12 people that I should not die today. Like, you know, I shouldn't die. So yeah, it didn't make sense at all. But let's talk about that for a second. What is the process um, or is there a process in exonerating someone who has been wrongfully convicted. Is there one way to go about it? No, not if you're creative, which you gotta be in this business. It's funny, I actually just got off a call with a guy in El Salvador talking about in El Salvador, how can they exonerate people because they don't have legal processes. And I said, there's always a way. (laughs) Sometimes it's a political process, sometimes it's a legal process. But um, in California, as in most jurisdictions, you have a right to file a petition to the court if you have new evidence of innocence. Unfortunately, California, um, when your case came up, and until the last few years, California had the toughest standard in the nation for reopening an old case. You had to have evidence that completely undermined the prosecution's case and pointed unerringly to innocence. And so without DNA, which is the most powerful evidence, it's pretty tough in California to get a case reopened. That's changed in the last few years. We now have a new standard that basically says, if the jury wouldn't have convicted on, in considering the new evidence, then you can get your conviction reversed, uh, which would have made your life a lot easier a lot earlier. But now there's this new law that just recently passed that is making it a lot harder for people that have been wrongfully convicted to, well, on the federal level, uh, to appeal their cases. You want to speak on that for a bit? Because I know that that's been been all over the news. Yeah, the federal court's take on innocence has always been pretty shocking. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly said that you have a right to a fair trial, but the mere fact that you're innocent in prison, there's no right to be released just because you're innocent. And that sentence, there's no right to be released just because you're innocent, is shocking. Like, 
what other reason would there be? <laughs> but you can get released from prison if they illegally searched your car. Right. And even though you had the drugs or the gun or whatever, you have a Fourth Amendment right to privacy. So you can get released from prison because of that. You can get released from prison if they violate your rights. But because the Supreme Court has said innocence isn't written into the Constitution, what's written into it is a right to a fair trial. So if your trial was fair based on what they knew at the time, then we don't need to revisit it. Based um, on what they feel is fair, uh, then they they then they don't need to revisit it. So essentially, what they're saying <laughs> is, you get one shot at this. If, if so long as there was no foul play in our eyes, and you got your fair chance, we will not revisit this again. Your sentence is your sentence. That's what they're saying. That is 100% correct. Yes. Nobody wants to go back. Nobody wants to go back and look at old cases. Um, and, you know, you know that from your case. You know that from all the other cases. When I always say that, you know, people don't like at a barbecue for someone to tell them how to flip a burger. And what our business is, is we roll into town and say, you know, that big case that you had several years ago where you put that guy away and. You know, everyone was cheering because you're a great prosecutor and you got the guy. We think you're wrong and we've got some evidence to prove it. That is not well received. So it goes against the system. It's the, it goes against, you know, the process. We're coming in saying the system made a mistake and mm -hmm. it, it resists that. And it, and it is funny, too, because, you know, we we appoint these people into these positions we all we we automatically look at them in a way of this prestige person, this person that has uh, that has, you know, stepped up to to handle a certain job, you know, and that job is to balance the scale of 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 fairness, of equality, of of due process, of all of these different things. When in all actualities, these are just normal people like me and you who hate their jobs, who don't want to go in this morning, who don't they don't want to read these long, you know, uh, uh, affidavits and these this paperwork, and they don't want to, you know, put in all this necessary work. Meanwhile, there's somebody on the other side of this case that's that that their life is on the line. They got picked up off the street for something that they didn't do, um, and they're hoping that you know a number of things happen. One, the truth comes out, but two, you put in the necessary work to discover the truth, uh, and three, uh, you know, you're not so uh out of tune with why you're here in the first place that you forget to do uh what's right versus what you can you know we're all human beings playing roles we're all human beings playing parts uh and i think some of us uh get too far into these roles and then some of us don't play them uh well enough as they should um yeah yeah and everybody falls into the bell curve right so i always talk about the bell curve where it's you know there's some of us who are extraordinary at what we do. Most of us fall into the good to okay, which is the big bell. And then there's some people who are just horrible and corrupt and terrible at what they do. Whether you're talking about plumbers, or whether you're talking about <laughs> athletes, whether you're talking about lawyers, whether you're talking about cops. So I think most people get up every day, try to do the best they can, and you know, do their job and go home to their families. Um, most people will take shortcuts in their work. Um, you're right, yep. they're human beings. So, you know, they got to go pick their kid up or they want to get home to watch Survivor. They don't necessarily yep. want to read the thousand pages of documents mm -hmm. that this guy sent from prison to say he's innocent. Right. Um, 
So it doesn't get the level of care that it needs. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking I quoted you today in a mm -hmm. class I'm teaching here in London where one of my students said, you know, what's it like for your clients when they come home? And I said, you know, my client Brian Banks told me once that when you go to prison, it's like you die and your family's really sad, but then they kind of move on. And then that space that you had kind of disappears and you come mm -hmm. back out and you expect that space to be there like it was, but everything has changed. Um, yeah. You told me that one night when we were walking around DC late at night mm -hmm. and it was a really profound thought, yeah. but that, it's that like, is. It's like dying and, and the world passes you by and you sit inside this glass cage and you just watch it all go. And the way you leave is the way people remember you. So if you left at 15, they remember you at 15 when you come home. They don't they didn't see your journey. They didn't see your growth. You know, same thing when you you know, same thing for them, too. You know, you didn't see their journey or their growth either. So it's kind of this disconnection of, uh, you know, from being separated. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like this line of work takes away from your freedom or enhances your freedom, your personal freedom? what you believe to be freedom. Oh. Wow, man, you're getting good at these questions. <laughs> um, I'm curious, and the reason I ask that is because, you know, you, you made a decision that you were going to pursue law, and then you had this profound experience of uh, meeting Marilyn and, and learning of her case and experiencing prison uh, you know, uh, kind of secondhand of, of being in that environment. And that made you want to help people who couldn't help themselves, right? So in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, you've put other people's freedom in front of your own freedom. Or does this enhance your freedom? Is, do you feel more free that you're helping people uh, uh, get their freedom, have their own freedom? I mean, I've had a great life. And I've had a great career and, you know, the, the thrill of walking into some people out of prison is just most lawyers never get that kind of experience. And I've been part of now 36 exonerations out of our office, which is 36 incredible to have that many lives. And as you know, it's not even just the guy I'm walking out or the woman I'm walking out. It's her family, it was family, friends, and everyone in that community that was impacted by it. Does it feel like a burden sometimes? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> in fact, I was just talking about this with a lawyer in my office that I find it more difficult to have any connection to the client's families anymore. Because once I meet the mom and the dad and the brothers and the sisters, it just becomes like a big weight on me. And even, you know, going to the prisons um, and getting to personally know clients adds the weight I, I used to be much better at sticking and moving and i'm not anymore i used to be able to just keep focused on the legal issues and try not to think of the tragedy um, that was their lives um, and as i've gotten older I'm, i've gotten worse at that not better at that so i feel myself sometimes pulling away and pulling away trying to pull away to protect myself emotionally from carrying around as much baggage so you you feel like you you feel like at where you are in your life now that you're starting to care that this is that this line of work is starting to 
in some ways take over your personal life or interfere with your personal life. Whereas in you, you're not able to separate the two because you no. you understand what goes into this. Yeah. I mean, it's my whole identity at this point. My identity is Justin Brooks, director of the California Innocence Project. What he does is try to get people out of prison. And the more of those people I'm carrying around um, and the more of their families I'm carrying around in my head, because I know now that I'm never getting to the end. I'm never getting to the end. And I think maybe I thought I was at some time, kind of deluded myself that like, I'm gonna be able to somewhat solve the bigger problem, but I'm not. I mean, we've been able to pass better laws. We've been able to get people out of prison. We're improving the system, but the problem isn't going away. Um, people are still getting wrongfully convicted every day. We're still getting the letter, the mail never stops. <laughs> you know, there's still a box of letters. Is it possible? to have a system where people are no longer wrongfully convicted? I don't think, is it possible? Possible is a tricky question. I mean, um, I don't think it's realistic because, I mean, we could do a hell of a lot better, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we can bring the number way down and, and key to that is freeing up resources in the system. I mean, it's ridiculous that the Innocence Project even exists. Like, right, why, why should a bunch of law students and law professors be mopping up all the government's mistakes? Like, the government should be doing this. It shouldn't be us doing bake sales and trying to raise money and, you know, mm -hmm. to work on cases where other people have made mistakes. Um, but so until we really make major reforms in that way of how we review cases, and we're making some progress. I mean, we've elected some progressive DAs. George Gascon in, in LA is a big example of that. Um, he's now not going after three strikes, not going after the death penalty, not trying to put people away for the rest of their lives. But as you know, we've been just building prisons for 30 years and we've been increasing incarceration and we're spending so much money on it that there's no money left to do trials, to do real investigation into cases. You know, only 5% of cases at best are going to trial. Yeah. So this idea that, and that's, that's why you and I had many conversations of why the Brian Banks movie was so important because mm -hmm. the world needs to know it's not a system of trials. It's a system of pleas. And when there's a plea bargain, there's not really a thorough investigation and you're not cross-examining witnesses. And you're not giving people all those great rights that exist in our system. So we got to get to the point where like we can, lower the number of people in prison, give alternative sentences, bring back billions of dollars that we've been wasting and start spending it the right way, which is giving people really good process, really reviewing cases. And when they go to prison, doing programming, rehabilitation, getting them job skills to continue to decrease that population. But we've been going the wrong direction for 30 years. It's yeah. going to take a lot to unwind that. Yeah. And, and, the other part to it, um, which on an everyday basis, um, whether it be through my social media DMs or whether it be in emails or whether it be on uh, my websites, is family members, um, mothers, fathers, daughters, cousins, every day. I, I probably get two to three a day um, messages of people asking for help that they have a family member or a friend that's locked up right now, that's fighting the case, 
that they're they're innocent they shouldn't be in there and no one's listening they don't have money they don't have a lawyer that they trust to step in and help them and they're running out of time and everyone's reaching out to me as someone who has been exonerated who's gone on to you know uh champion and advocate for other wrongfully convicted people and have a movie um there's this um you know they've 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 gone through so many options and they've depleted so many options that they're at a point now where they're reaching out to brian banks the guy who's not an attorney who has no legal degree or can provide you legal advice but they have no one else to go to so and and the thing is is you know the California Innocence Project, the work is post-conviction work. It's it's the fight after you've been wrongfully convicted of something that you didn't do. But what about all the people who are in prison or in jail right now fighting cases um, and they haven't been wrongfully convicted yet and they have no help? What do they do? What What's the advice that you would give them? I mean, yeah, that's the heartbreaking thing is every single day we're turning down people because they haven't been convicted it sounds like a stupid thing to say like uh call me back when you get convicted right i can't help you out now yeah but the reality is because there's millions of people in the system that are small organization and none of the innocence projects can take on trial work because if we did that we could only represent two or three people we couldn't be having you know all these people that were represent post-conviction work which isn't as intensive as trial work. And there's also public defenders out there and other people that are available for trial work where there isn't those people available when people are locked up, no longer have a right to a lawyer. Um, so what we've tried to do in our project is change some of the front end stuff to decrease the number of wrongful convictions that end up happening. And for example, one of the big things we accomplished in California was getting reforms on how identification procedures are done because we found out that's the number one reason people go to prison or innocent is because they get identified wrong. And a lot of us to do with the horrible procedures that the police have been using forever. Um, we tried to get Los Angeles to change for 20 years and they wouldn't. And finally, we got a law passed to force them to stop doing things like six pack photo arrays and really suggestive procedures that lead to the wrong person. You know, we push for reforms to get all the confessions that are made, to have them recorded and fighting that battle around the country so that the jury can hear the 12 hours of a guy being yelled at who finally just says, okay, I can't take it anymore. I'll sign whatever you have. People don't know what happens in those rooms. The juries need to know that. So that's the work that we can do is on the policy end. But sadly, we can't provide that representation to them at the time of trial because we just don't have those resources. So I, like you, don't know what to say most of the time, except for try to stay on top of your public defender. If your family has any resources that can supplement it in an investigation, I'd encourage them to do that. But as you know, most of these people are poor. They don't have any resources, and they're at the mercy of these lawyers and they don't even really understand what's going on. I mean, you know, you're a dad, I'm a dad. I just imagine that situation where like your kid is going through this and you can't do anything. I say it all the time. Money. I've been yeah. saying it from I've been saying it from the moment that I walked out of the situation. I, I know what it feels like to be wrongfully convicted. I know what it feels like 
to be put in jail for a crime you didn't commit. I know what it feels like to be uh, to be branded and labeled uh, something so uh, uh, cruel uh, and sickening. But I have no idea what it feels like to be a parent, a mother, a father, to have your kid literally stripped from your arms and you do all that you can to save them. Like my mom selling her house, selling her car, giving every dime she had to this lawyer and nothing happens. Nothing comes of it. I'm not sure what that, what that feels like as a parent. Um, but there's a lot of parents right now, uh, listening, uh, and, and we'll find this podcast, um, that are dealing with this right now. And, and they're looking for answers and they're, they're, they're asking the same questions of, why and how and, and what do I do? Who do I run to? Yeah, and I remember you telling, saying that a lot when you first got your conviction reversed that you didn't know what it was like to be a parent of a child in that situation. And you still don't know that because your child hasn't been in the situation. But mm-hmm. you know a lot more now as a parent about what that feeling is probably like because you're in control of your child and you, you, know, you, you help them in every step of the way and your job is to make sure the world doesn't damage your child and the world doesn't you know you're you're the thing in between that child and all the bad stuff in the world mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you can't do anything except for beg for help it, it it's just got to be the worst feeling in the world and i you know i'm lucky that i've never had to be in that situation and i think part of why i want to become a lawyer is you know, I saw my father go through these bankruptcies and I saw him being sort of helpless against it. And I wanted to have the power that I saw that lawyers have. Lawyers know the rules. and They know how to play the game. And I wanted that that power. And, you know, now hopefully through my career, I've used that power for good and not evil. <laughs> but it is a form of power. Knowledge is power. Yeah. And you're also doing um, the same work on an, on an international level. Um, working in uh, uh, Central America, over in Europe. I mean, you, you've you've been doing a lot of work um, uh, abroad. You want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, I mean, I've realized over the last several years that I'm only one human being, so it's probably a better use of my time at this point in my life instead of sitting in my office working on one individual case to be out there trying to create projects that could ultimately maybe help thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So I've helped to found um, 32 innocence organizations in Latin America, wow. South America, Central America, Mexico. We're now up to 32. 32. Uh, one of our projects just, yep. One of our projects just got a guy out of prison yesterday in Tabasco, Mexico. And uh, I'm here in London right now. We've got three projects um, in the United Kingdom that I've worked with. I've been over to Japan when they started their projects. Um, I've, I've worked with projects all around the world because I want to share my knowledge of how to start these projects, run these projects, get them going, because I know that'll have more impact long after I'm gone than if I just work on my own individual cases. So I've really devoted a lot of my life to that. I'll probably spend most of the rest of my career um, doing that. Yeah, man. Amazing. Well, I, I can tell you that... that- the work that you are doing um, is legacy work. You are creating a legacy that will live on. Um, I, I know, because I've known you for years, how much you inspire the people that are around you. You've inspired your son to take up uh, you know, law and 
He's now a lawyer. Um, you've, you've helped many law students to see their dreams and the direction of their passions. Um, and you've helped many, many families um, be brought back together. Um, you've saved lives. And you've done this all, um, you know, <laughs> really just out of love and out of care um, because there's no money in this. Yeah. There's no... Uh, there's no big major contracts. There's no big rewards. Um, so it's, uh, it's amazing work. It's, it's, it's needed work and, and the world, we thank you. I thank you. We appreciate you. Well, the big reward is sitting here talking to you and knowing you're doing well. I, first time we met, I had tears in my eyes and I, you know, I, my, my, my head sunk between my shoulders and I was looking for somebody to to help make a wrong right, you know, and, and here we are now, you know, smiling and talking about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's something to be thankful for. And it's, it says a lot about freedom, uh, that, you know, you could be out hanging with the, with the boys or with the girls having a great time and living life the way you want to. And in, in an instant, um, you know, that could be taken away and, and you're, you're succumbed to, the 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 will and uh the say so of somebody else <laughs> so yeah. uh but jb I, I really thank you for for joining me today on this podcast um to talk about um freedom and, and innocence um and the importance of why we have to continue to fight for those who can't fight for themselves so i totally commend you guys and i always thank you and you know the love is there um, for you for the California Innocence Project? You guys really have um, shown me the good side of this world. Um, I've had an opportunity to experience both sides of the human spirit: the really ugly, um, and the very gentle, kind, and loving. And you all are that. And what you do is 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 so important. It's so valuable to this world. Um, I hope that this message gets out to so many people um, because one day you could find yourself or a family member of yours or a friend of yours, um, you know, in jail for something that they didn't do. Uh, freedom lost. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And people don't want to wait to then care about it. <laughs> right. For more information on Is This Freedom or to hear past and future episodes, be sure to visit us at www.brianbanksfree.com or on Instagram and all social media platforms at BB Is This Freedom. <laughs>